0: All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? I'm doing great. Not only are we celebrating that Jesus rose from the dead, but we're celebrating Lionel Messi's international glory, right? (laughs) You Americans, you Americans. Just kidding, no. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be with us this morning. If you're just joining us, we are walking our way through the book of Matthew. And we're in a section right now on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives a uh, three-chapter sermon in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, we saw last week that Jesus encountered a problem. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is now going to deal with a second problem over the next few weeks as we look at it. But what we're saying is that the good news kingdom in the person of Jesus has come. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he is laying out the ethic or the way of being for those who are citizens of this new kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to be reading chapter 5, verses 21-21 through 26, and looking at, I think, a very difficult passage, not necessarily to understand, but to actually take to heart and to see what Jesus is actually demanding of his followers. As I said last week, sure, it is, in one sense, free grace that is what saved us, what is saving us, and will save us. It will never be any of our works in the past, present, or future that save us. It is always God's free grace that is saving us. And so in one sense, Christianity is really easy. Believe. Put your trust in the free grace of our great God. And yet, I don't know that we often hear the other side balanced with that, that Jesus demands a lot. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21-26, through 26, we have a very difficult, I think, ethic of the kingdom that Jesus is demanding, and we'll see at the end, we can only, only live out by grace. Jesus says this, you've heard it said that of the people long ago, you shall not murder, <clears throat> and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Excuse me. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgments. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court or the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gifts. And settle matters matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison, and I truly tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. Let's pray. Father, we need the Spirit of God to meet with us, to see the beauty of the grace that we have in the person of Jesus, so that we might actually live out this first ethic that Jesus is demanding of the citizens of His kingdom. So I pray very specifically, Spirit, that You will speak to us, that we will hear You, And that we'll be able to see and worship in our seats our King. In Jesus' name, Amen. I said in the beginning, Jesus dealt with a problem last week that we talked about. And that was the, the relationship between the law that the 613 commands that the Jewish people kept, and now the new law that Jesus is going to lay out. And so we saw last week, and you can go back on the website if you want to and, and hear this sermon again, but the idea is that Jesus is not coming to abolish the law, destroy the law, say the law is bad. He came to fulfill it, to bring it to its intended goal, to bring it to its intended completion. And as we'll see in Matthew's Gospel, as we saw over the last couple of weeks together, is that the reason that Jesus can do this is because He has the authority to bring it to its completion because He's the one who's the only one who's perfectly obeyed it all. And as the one who has completely fulfilled the law and bring it to its logical ends, and now everything is now being transferred not through the law, but through Christ... His followers need to understand that Jesus, as fulfillment, is going to bring a new kingdom ethic, a new conduct, a new code by which they are to live. And now Jesus, in these next few sections, is going to deal with a second problem, and that second problem is what we're going to call oral tradition. Oral tradition. Because of high illiteracy rates and lack of raw materials for writing... Most history and cultures were passed down orally. Okay, I don't think we quite comprehend this, but Jesus, some commentators think he's in Galilee right now and probably a good distance from Jerusalem and, and probably there were uh, synagogues in these towns where in that particular synagogue a copy of the law would be. But there would only be maybe, let's just say, one copy of the law per town. Does that make sense? Like That would be like me owning the Bible. Okay, and you had to come here to see the Bible. But when you came to see the Bible, you know what happened? You couldn't read it. So who were you dependent upon to read it and to tell you what it was all about? And so what the Jewish people did is they had these oral traditions. Traditions of the law that were passed on through campfires, through meals together. And the oral traditions represent those laws, the statutes, the commands... The legal interpretations of the Old Testament law that were not in the five books of Moses. Yet, even though these laws, statutes and commands were not in the five books of Lo- Mo- law of Moses, the Jews saw them as prescriptive, as a way of living, that you need to obey these oral, traditional laws. This holistic Jewish code of conduct, this oral tradition that was passed on, encompasses a wide range of rituals and worship practices and interpersonal relationships, how we're to interact with each other, and dietary laws, and Sabbath, what you do on Sabbath. And and as I mentioned two weeks ago, there's different schools, like a conservative school and and a liberal school. And the conservative school, you could only take 70 steps a day and you were to measure how many steps you took had to govern agricultural practices, civil claims, and damages. And so through all of this, there were all of these oral traditions that were being passed on through generation and generation that were deemed as authoritative for the Jewish community. It wasn't until the second century after Jesus had Come and died and rose from the dead. And after the Jewish people were, sorry, after Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in AD 70, into that next century, the Jewish people began to write down all of these laws, and it's recorded in what the Jewish people even today refer to as the Talmud. The Talmud. Now, the people who are responsible for these laws we saw last week are the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper. I tried to give a little bit of sympathy to the Pharisees last week. Remember, I said, like, the only people that Jesus ever condemns are the Pharisees, and the only people we look at in the Bible and say, you idiots, are the Pharisees, right? Like, But let's give a little sympathy to the Pharisees, and caveat, don't become a Pharisee to a Pharisee, by the way, okay? And you can think about that, <clears throat> because then you become what you're criticizing, and that becomes bad. But the Pharisees were not a political party. In fact, they were indifferent to political rulers as long as they were permitted to obey the law and do what they wanted to do. So Pharisaism was like a lay movement. It was like a a movement of the common people, in a sense. And and according to Josephus, a Jewish historian, there was about 6,000 Pharisees in the first century. Approximately 1% of the Jewish population were, uh, in a sense, deemed Pharisees. Although small, as a a group of people, as a party, they were hugely influential. Pharisaism, the the school of the Pharisees, was reputed for its high ideals. And in the words of Josephus, again, was extremely influential among the common people. So the Jewish oral tradition passed on all of these laws to the Jewish people that you should obey them. And the people who were primarily the ones responsible for advocating these oral traditions and promoting these oral traditions were the Pharisees. And Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard it said long ago. Jesus is like, you've heard the law. You've heard all of these rules that the people have given over you and what Jesus is going to do over the next several weeks is he's going to give a deeper more fuller meaning to their oral traditions and to the Old Testament law. In fact, what we're going to see interestingly <clears throat> is that both Jesus and the Pharisees were interested in what I'm going to call intensifying the law. If you remember last week I gave a, a chart that the Jewish people would have a commands and then what they would do is they'd build another command outside of that, and they'd keep building more and more gates around the command so that if you broke through the first 15 gates, you still didn't break what? The real commands. And so they built all of these traditions and laws outside to ensure that they never broke the commands. And they were intensifying the law by what? Binding people's consciences to do more and more and more. And what Jesus is actually doing is he's going to intensify the law. But rather than move outward, Jesus is in a sense he's going to move inward. Rather than creating a group of people who can just obey a bunch of external, conform conform to a bunch of external rules, he wants to actually create a citizen, a kingdom of people, where actually the meaning of the law has actually changed the person. Sometimes... We need to see that Jesus is concerned about the holistic. He's about moving to the inward so that the outward can actually be true and it can be real. And so Jesus, if you look in verse 27... It's going to deal with all these things. We read verse 21, but look in verse 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Verse 33, again, you've heard it said, don't break your oath, but fulfill the Lord the vows you have made, but I will say to you. And I'm not giving away the answers because we're going to look at these over the next five weeks. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I'm going to tell you this. Or Matthew 5.43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and Jesus is going to deepen that. And so the second problem Jesus is encountering is that all these people have all these oral traditions that the Pharisees have given them, and Jesus is going to say, okay, not all of those things are wrong and bad. But as the one who has come to fulfill the law, let me actually tell you the actual meaning and the true understanding of what these laws are all about. And the first one this morning that we're going to deal with is the deepening on the slide here, is the deepening and the fulfillment of the new covenant law and simply this. Deals with the anger and contempt are the real issues. <clears throat> anger and contempt are the fulfillment of what the Sixth Commandment is getting after. So the explicit prohibition in our text this morning is the Sixth Commandment that says, Do not murder. And if you do murder, you will be subject to judgments. Leviticus says anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Now, the Jewish people added to these laws of like what this judgment would look like and how it would go, but according to the Old Testament, just if you killed someone willingly, purposefully, you were to be put to death. Jesus, in this passage, is going to go one step further. And, And if we're not following along here, it is not as though if there is no bloodshed that the true and eternal meaning of the sixth commandment has been fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying is just because you didn't kill someone who you really hated doesn't mean you're off the hook it doesn't mean that you fulfilled the purpose of the Six Commandments. What is wrong and what Jesus is getting after here is the motivation that undergirds the reason that murder actually occurs. You hate someone. You're angry with someone to the point of wishing them dead. The attitude underneath the murder, Jesus is saying, is just as liable to judgment as the act itself. Because murder is more than an action, there is something more fundamental at stake. It is not just the fact that you kept from killing someone, it is the way that you view other humans. Your relationships are at stake. Murderous anger and wrath are like lurking in the shadows behind the act of murder itself. Which means, Jesus says, that anger and wrath are themselves just as worthy of judgment and blame as sticking the knife through someone's hearts. Jesus insists not only the murderer, but anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now you're thinking, okay, good. I'm off the hook. I don't want to kill someone. I just kind of like, I just got mad at them and wished they'd get out of my life. I don't want to like take a gun and, blow their heads off, you know, I just want to run away from them and that they're never in my life again, great, right? Like, how many of you are like, good, that's me. Well, Jesus is not done with you yet. But it's not just anger, it's also contempt. It's also the idea that if someone is worthless to you and beyond consideration... The people in your mind who who deserve scorn and ridicule. The people who deserve your absence in their life. You're like, you're not worthy of me, and I'm running away from you. You've done this to me, so you don't deserve my presence. And Jesus drives home, it's not just anger, but it's contempt, with the next two phrases. He says, anyone who calls his brother or sister raka. Okay? Aren't you all excited? You now know an Aramaic word called raka. And it's an expression of abuse. It, it's, it means like empty in Aramaic. And it could be translated <clears throat> whatever word you like. You idiot, you blockhead, you moron. Whatever phrase you want to put in there. Does that make sense? But it's a, it's a term that you give to someone who you are angry at, that that you are abusing, that you want harm to come to in some way, maybe not death, but some sort of harm to come to them, and you call them raka. Or, Jesus says, anyone who calls someone a fool. This is someone who is pertaining to be extremely unwise and foolish. This is actually in 15 years from now, when we get to the very last section in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is telling the parable of the sand and the rock, if you're familiar with that passage, you build your house on the rock or build your house on the sand, the person who builds their house on the sand is this very same word, foolish. (laughs) So isn't this interesting? Jesus says, anyone who calls someone fool will be worthy of judgment, and yet Jesus, at the end of the sermon, says what? The person who builds his house on the sand is Unwise. So you catch that tension? How do you resolve that tension? Because again, it isn't just saying to someone, you fool. It is the motivation by which you then out of your mouth say that word fool. Does Jesus actually care about all the people on the sermon on the mountain, mountainside who are listening to him? And he's telling them as a loving person that if you build your house on the sand, you're like a foolish person. He's doing out of love and concern versus like you and me when people offend us and people do things to us and they insult us and they gossip about us and they're, they're mean to us and they exclude us. We're like, you idiots. It is not the word itself. It is actually the motivation that is undergirding the reason by which we are communicating to these people. So do you think of yourself as morally superior because you have never murdered someone? Have you never hated someone? Do you not frequently insult people in your rage? Have you not gossiped about someone? All of these motivations of the heart lie at the heart of murder, and it causes a wise person, who builds their house on the rock, to see that you and I, on the next slide, do not actually differ at all from an actual murderer. Okay, like, do, do you grasp that? All of these evil motivations of the heart—anger and contempt lie at the heart of murder and cause a wise person to see that you and I do not really differ at all from an actual murderer. Jesus is saying this is what the point of the Sixth Commandment is. High five that you've never committed murder. But at the end of the day, how do you look at people in your life? The relationships that you have? Are they filled with with anger and contempt? And so, Israel, when Jesus is writing these, giving this sermon, Matthew's writing it, when Israel must not remain content, you and I must not remain content with shallow readings of Scripture. One where, for, for example, where only murder is the issue. We must must not be condemned. We must push deeper into what Jesus is actually commending. And notice, Jesus does not forbid all anger, because we're going to see later in the the Gospel narratives that Jesus goes in and turns over all the temple uh, tables. Remember this story? So He's not condemning all anger. But what he is, is he's prohibiting anger that arises out of personal relationships in which sin has occurred and you are now angry at other people. We can be angry, truly angry at injustice in this world. But to be angry at a brother or sister has done something to you is what Jesus is prohibiting. And we see this reality of going to your brother and sister and reconciling in these next two examples. Look in verse 23, we see the first example. And the example is this, we need to reconcile with our brother and sister, the person that we are angry with, the person that we are showing contempt. And in verses 23 and 24, this first example with reconciliation with our brother and sister shows the importance of reconciling. Jesus says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, go be reconciled, and then offer your gift. Jesus here is recreating a, a serious scenario involving the sacrificial system in which someone is, uh, let's just say this, they're, let's just say they're, in, they're from Galilee. Where are they offering their gift at the altar? Jerusalem. Okay, how long did it take to get to Jerusalem? A couple days walk if you went straight, right? Like this is not some like, let's just go to Food Lion and jump in the car and we're there in five minutes. This offering probably only happened once or twice a year and was a very important event. And there was probably, because there was only once or twice a year in Jerusalem you would offer this gift as a sacrifice to God, there would be a very long line. It'd be like going to Walt Disney World on a major holiday. They're going to be sitting there in line because everyone's there. And this is a very solemn duty that Jesus is saying, if you've made it all the way to Jerusalem, and you're waiting in line, and while you're waiting in line, you remember and now notice something very carefully. Not that you have done something to your brother or sister, but that your brother or sister has something against you. Notice carefully, Jesus says it is the other person who is angry. You may not be angry, you may be innocent. The initiative is with the one who learns about the animosity, whether they're guilty or innocent. The question of who is at fault in this particular scenario is ambiguous. And it's clearly the other person is holding the grudge. So, if it's not that if you hold a grudge, you need to go to that person. What Jesus is saying is, if you know someone is holding a grudge against you, you better get out of line, go 80 miles north, back to Galilee, deal with that particular relationship, and then come back 80 miles and offer your gifts. Do you see what Jesus is saying, the importance of reconciliation? How many of you would just be like, you know what, I'm just going to offer my gift, and when I get back up there, I'll do it. How many would say, I'm just going to come to a church service today, and I'll deal with that relationship this week sometime? How many of you are going to take communion today when you know that there is a brother or sister who has a grudge against you, and you're like, I'll do it after communion? Jesus is saying, you may be innocent, but what is of utmost importance in the kingdom, the way of living, the way of being, is the way of reconciliation. The presence of unreconciliation, of unreconciled brothers and sisters in the church is a destructive cancer that Jesus says it is so important that you deal with this, that you don't worship, you don't do the right thing until that restoration has taken place. It's the core of the passage. And the church cannot allow Anger and contempt and divisiveness and disunity to be involved. This is why Paul in the New Testament, if you understand Paul's letters in the New Testament, his overwhelming command in the church is be unified. And the people like Iodia and Syntyche in the church at Philippi are causing divisions and he's like telling the elders to get involved and deal with that situation. Jesus' point is this. As long as there is divisive, unreconciled relationships in the church, the church's mission will always be compromised. This is connected to Matthew's themes and forgiveness that we'll get to in chapter 6, that if you cannot forgive your brother and sister in Christ, you have not experienced the forgiveness, and you cannot experience the forgiveness of God. There is an importance to what Jesus is saying, that in all of your anger, in all of your contempt, in your relationships, that you deal with that immediately. Example 2. Jesus is now going to give a second example about reconciliation, and not, this time it's going to be more on the urgency, the importance of it, and now the urgency. Jesus says this, we're to reconcile with our enemies. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on your way, like there's this picture that, You're in your house making bread for lunch and all of a sudden outside your door, the person, your adversary, comes knocking on the door of the Roman guards and says, hey, we're off to court. I'm taking you to court. And you're like, what? And so on your way to court, Jesus is encouraging you to find reconciliation there. Like, do everything you can on your way to court to do it. Because when you get to court, you may be thrown into prison and you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. Like, um, in, this, in this culture, if you owed someone money and they knocked on your door and said, I'm taking you to court because you owe me $10, and you go to court and they throw you into jail, you're in jail until you pay the $10. But how are you going to pay $10 when you're in jail? You're going to be there and for a very long time Unless one of your family members can, can pay your debt, you're going to be there. You can't get out and go make money. You're stuck there, and it's, you're going to be paid to the very last, and in the English we have very last penny. But the idea here is this is like the second of the smallest coin. It's like, uh, it's like a very small amount, even in the Jewish world. Jesus is saying it is urgent that you do this because judgment is coming. And you see this idea of judgment throughout this passage. You'll be liable to judgment. You'll be taken before the Sanhedrin, which is like the 70 leaders of the Pharisees who were the court of Israel at that time. Or you'll be taken and before the court of God and thrown into hell. Jesus is saying the unreconciled life is the life where a person does not belong to the kingdom of God. And if you don't belong to the kingdom of God, you're going to be cast into utter darkness. But the life of a citizen in the kingdom of God is someone who is not going to be angry. Who's going to seek reconciliation with their brothers and sisters. If we're honest, this passage hits home in so many ways that we don't even fully grasp all of its ramifications. But interestingly, after Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and and tells Israel their purpose of being salt and light in the world by obeying all of these commands that He's going to give them, and He gives the relationship between the law and what He's about to give, what is the very first topic Jesus addresses? It is the relationships that the church and the kingdom community possesses. One of the hardest things to do in this life is to foster genuine, true relationships. One of the reasons that this is so hard is because we're so quick to be hurt, to be offended, and not to seek reconciliation. And this hurt and this offense keeps us from distances from the people we live right next to. On the next slide it says this, we deceive ourselves into thinking that if I'm done with that relationship, the next one will be better. We think if we just let time pass, our personal hurt will go away when all is really done is harden your own heart towards present and future relationships. How many times have we done this? That we have a problem with someone and we just run away from that person and we try to stay away from them and we do something different and we have all this space and we think that space has created some sort of acceptance with that person but all that space has done is ruined your ability to have relationships with all the people who are in your life right now. If you can't deal with that, you're going to be guarded and protected with every other relationship that you possess. And so where there is no reconciliation and forgiveness, there's no relationship. And when there's no relationship, there is no life. And where there's no life, there's no kingdom of God present because God is life. There is no greater way to witness to the kingdom of God and the new way of being in his kingdom citizenship than running 80 miles back home to reconcile with your brother and then come worship. Imagine if the church lived that way. Imagine if we took the importance and the urgency of maintaining and and having forgiveness and genuine relationships and not just being like, oh, it's okay, you didn't hurt me, it's fine. No, being like, you did hurt me. And having people come and say, you know what, I hurt you, I'm really sorry. How can we work through this? There's no greater witness to the kingdom of God than the actual congregation of the kingdom actually live out what they believe, that God in the person of Jesus has reconciled them to him. Now, where do Christians get this ability? Like, this just seems inhuman. Romans chapter 5 says this. I have this on the screen for you. You see that just at the right time, when we were what, church? Powerless. Christ died for who, church? Very rarely anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this while we were still what, church? Sinners. Christ died for us. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we save from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's what church? We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. Look at who you are in this in this passage, you are the powerless, you are the ungodly, you are the sinners, and you are the enemies of God Himself. And in your relationships, do you think you're the one who's powerful? Do you think you're the one who's godly? Do you think you're the one who's righteous? Do you think you're the one who's on the right team? And so everyone else needs to come and bow down at your, your godliness and your power and, and your righteousness? When you think that way, that is your self-righteousness bringing itself out so that you won't even hear people when they say that you need to repent. You won't be able to go to people and ask for repentance because you don't see that in the good news of the gospel that God came to you because you are powerless. You have no ability. You are ungodly. Every dictate of your heart runs away from God in your flesh. And you are a sinner who, has, who possesses no love for God as an enemy. So, where does a church get this power? Because in all of this, God still ran to you. The degree to which you see the reconciliation that you possess with God will be the degree to which you seek reconciliation with God's people. That's the bottom line. That if you don't seek reconciliation with God's people, it's because you don't really understand the reconciliation that you have through Jesus with God the Father by His Spirit. In fact, the degree to which you see Jesus running 80 miles to you, knowing that I have the offense, He doesn't have the offense. And He came running to me through His death to bring God's reconciling, free mercy and grace. Will be the degree to which those will be the degree to which we run to those who are angry with us. It's a hard passage. It's not just murder. It's are you angry? Do you show contempt in your relationships? And in those relationships, are you quick to bring reconciliation? Father, help us. To be people who value the reconciliation we have with you through Jesus <clears throat> so that we might be able to have the power to actually seek reconciliation and to bring that reconciliation that we have with you to our relationships with others I want to pray for our church right now that if there are relationships that need reconciliation that you would by your spirit bring those to lights, bring healing I pray that you bring humility and grace to us, that we might be citizens of the kingdom who aren't just satisfied that we haven't murdered, but we are delighted that we have actually sought out reconciliation. So we pray against the evil one and his temptations, that he will not continue to blind us, to what we need to see. And may the light of the good news of Jesus shine so that we might see where we need to go and seek reconciliation. In Jesus' name we pray.